This Parsha podcast is dedicated in the merit of the complete, total, and speedy recovery of David Pinchas ben Reuven, who is experiencing some health troubles. May he merit a refua shalema. I want to thank all of y'all for sending in your Torch podcast testimonials. I got testimonials in all formats, video, audio, and written testimonials. I know some of y'all wanted to maintain your anonymity. That's okay. But I want to give you guys a sample of a testimonial. So y'all get to hear some voices of some of your fellow classmates and participants in the Parsha podcast, but also to know that it's really meaningful for me. And I listen to every one of them. And like I mentioned last week, we're going to use them, please God, in our campaign of 2023, but we'll also use them a little bit, I guess, in 2022. Hello, my name is Michael Rosen, and I'd like to take a minute to share how Rabbi Wolby's podcast have changed my life. Um, I came across Rabbi Wolby's podcast a few years ago at the beginning of my spiritual journey, and my learning through Rabbi Wolby has catapulted uh, above many, many levels, uh, whether it's the Parsha or Jewish history, Torah 101, Jewish life, anytime I want to learn about Judaism, the most direct and efficient way, the way I enjoy the most is to listen to Rabbi Wolby, his amazing words, his amazing, his genius way of communicating ideas. Uh, my wife and I are both so much better off because of Rabbi. We have Rabbi Wolby in our lives. Rabbi Wolby, keep up the good work. And to all um, potential supporters, this is the cause to support. Thank you so much, Michael, for your kind and generous words. Today we're going to do something fun, I hope. It's a bit of an intricate study of one of the plot twists of our parsha, Parshas Vayeshev. Of course, our parsha contains loads of plot twists. But the one we're going to study relates to maybe one of the most shocking developments in the Torah. Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter, of course, from four wives. And there is some friction in this large family. And that friction is especially present between Joseph and his brothers. And there are a variety of factors that cause the brothers' enmity towards Joseph. For one, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. He looks like Jacob. Jacob imparts his Torah that he studied for 14 years in the academy of Shem and Aver. He imparts that Torah to Joseph. He gives Joseph a special tunic. The brothers are not happy with Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. Joseph also has some juvenile tendencies. He likes to play with his hair, and he snitches on his brothers to Jacob. So there's a little bit of friction and conflict between Joseph and his brothers. Now, things exacerbate when Joseph has dreams of grandeur and superiority. 
We're bundling bundles. I have my bundle. You have your bundles, he tells his brothers. And lo and behold, your bundles bow down to my bundles. And then he has a second dream. And he sees in the dream the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, representing his 11 brothers bowing down to him. And Joseph makes the perhaps short-sighted decision to tell his brothers about his dreams. And all that does is increase their enmity. You're going to rule over us? Are you going to be in charge of us? Are you going to dominate us? They hated him even more. Now, Jacob tries to quell the conflict, but those hard feelings linger. This is how our Parsha starts. Jacob has had a life of conflict. Parsha's told us. He's born, he's got a twin brother, they go in different directions, and he has to scheme, and he's forced to do things that he's very uncomfortable with, he has to steal the blessings, he has to flee, and he gets to Laban's house, and he's got to deal with all of Laban's shenanigans, and last week, of course, Parshas Vayishlach, he has to fight with Esav's angel, and then he has to fight with Esav himself, and he has to avoid reunification, which would be very dangerous to Jacob and his family, and then Dina, she is assaulted, taken captive, and Shimon and Levi slaughtered the whole city. Jacob's life has been an unending series of trials. And now, all the external trials, all the external challenges seem to go away, and now he's facing internal conflict and discord. Now, of course, it's not so extraordinary to have sibling rivalry is very common. Even my kids, they always say, oh, this one's your favorite. I'm the least favorite. No, you love him more than you love me. I myself come from a family of nine children. I have eight siblings. And I think we had those conversations as well. I think it's very common in multi-child families that there is either some sibling rivalry or some favoritism or allegations of parental favoritism. It's normal. It happens. It's not uncommon. And it should not appear to be so worrisome. But what happens to Jacob's family is quite uncommon. Joseph is sent to check up on his brothers. And when they see him approaching, they see him from afar, They say, look who's coming, it's the dreamer. And they scheme and plot to kill him and to take his corpse and discard it into one of the pits. And let us see what happens with his dreams. And Reuben, the oldest brother, he hears what they're planning and he says, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to kill him. Instead, let us throw him into a pit. Reuben was trying to save Joseph. And indeed, when Joseph arrived, they strip off his tunic and they cast him into a pit bereft of water. Rashi tells us it didn't have any water, but it did have snakes and scorpions in it. Joseph was alive, yes, but in a very precarious predicament. And then something else happened. As the brothers are eating bread, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites and they're traveling to Egypt. And Judah says, well, what do we gain from keeping him in the pit? And he's going to be eaten or he's going to be hurt, or he's going to be killed by those snakes and scorpions. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. After all, Joseph is our brother. 
and he's our flesh. So they extract Joseph, and they sell him to the Ishmaelites for, for 20 silver coins, which we are told that they used to purchase shoes with. And the Ishmaelites eventually sell him to the Midianites, who eventually sell him to Egypt. Joseph arrives in Egypt. Jacob's sons, the brothers of Joseph, they sell him as a slave, and eventually Joseph arrives in Egypt. Now, of course, if we zoom out, we know that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in the covenant of the parts, chapter 15 of Genesis. This is even before Isaac is born, and God promises Abraham, that you should surely know that your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign land, and they'll be enslaved, and they'll be tormented for 400 years. And then they're going to leave with great wealth. A precondition for our nation being the people of the Almighty, the nation of God. One of the preconditions is that we're going to have to endure centuries of subjugation in a foreign land. And then we'll have the Exodus, and then we'll have the sign of Revelation, we'll get the Torah, we'll conquer the land, we'll build a temple. But before all of that, we're going to have to endure the iron crucible of a foreign land. Of course, that turns out to be the land of Egypt. And this all gets started with Joseph being sold as a slave. The inexplicable sale of the brothers of Joseph, this begins the process of fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Of course, Joseph, I don't want to spoil the story, but Joseph's going to end up in Egypt. Eventually, he's going to be incarcerated But he is going to be taken out of jail and eventually become viceroy of Egypt. And he's going to prepare the Egyptians for their years of famine. And that famine is going to bring the rest of the family. And slowly and insidiously, once the family of Jacob are in Egypt, they're going to be enslaved. So this plan of 400 years of enslavement, this big picture, what's going to happen with the Jewish people... That, of course, was foretold to Abraham, is now being set into motion right here, right now. The brothers hate Joseph. They entertain killing him. They settle for just selling him. And Joseph is the first representative of this glorious family in Egypt. And he's going to be there for 22 years before Jacob and the rest of the family arrive. But Joseph is the first pioneer He's a pioneer, disagreeably so, unwittingly so, but the nation is now descending into the Iron Crucible. Now, if you studied the sale of Joseph, of course, it's one of the most shocking events of the Torah. And only once we really zoom out and we are able to see the perspective of hundreds of years and we know what God told Abraham and we see how it all ended up with the nation leaving with great miracles and fanfare, the outstretched arm the Exodus, and eventually making their way to Sinai and getting the manna for 40 years and having Moshe and all that, it worked out pretty well. And look at us, you know, we're still here. We are an eternal nation still fighting and struggling to fulfill Abraham's mission and destiny. And it all starts over here now with Joseph. 
But if you examine the sale of Joseph, you notice that there are various stages of changes that happen to him. The initial plan is when he's coming down and they see him from a distance. This is chapter 37, verse 19 and 20. And they say, look, here's the dreamer. Dreamer's coming. Let's kill him and cast him into one of these pits. And we'll say a wild animal, a bad animal took care of him. She killed him. Let's see what happens with those dreams. The initial plan was to kill, actively kill Joseph. And then Reuben intervenes. Vayishma Reuven, and Reuven heard. And he started to save him. We're not going to kill him. Don't spill his blood. Instead, throw him into the pit. Again, the pit that doesn't have any water, but does have snakes and scorpions. But we're not going to kill him. Maybe he'll die, but it won't be at our hand. So, Stage one, or the plan initially, was to kill him. Now Reuben's intervening, saying, well, let's not kill him, at least not actively. Let's put him in the pit. Now, of course, the pit teeming with snakes and scorpions is not the ideal conditions. This is not the uh, the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons. But it's still better than being dead, right? So this is the first stage, the first upgrade, so to speak, that Joseph received. The first salvation was done by by Reuben. And with Joseph languishing in the pit, the brothers are eating bread upstairs. Judah takes the next step. He sees the caravan of the Ishmaelites. And he says, well, what gain do we have if he dies in there? Let's extract him from the pit and sell him as a slave. And again, it's not the ideal conditions to be a slave. But it's still better than being in the waterless pit full of snakes and scorpions. So Joseph ends up as a slave, but it could have been much worse. Had the initial plan been implemented, Joseph would have been actively killed by his brothers, and Reuben stopped that. And next, he would have been passively killed by the brothers. They would have caused him to be killed by the snakes and scorpion, and Judah stopped that. He ended up alive, albeit as a slave. So it's interesting, we have Reuben and Judah, they're both contributing to the improvement of the state of Joseph, but neither, of course, does the full job, neither neither saves him completely. If you look at the works of our sages, you find that both Reuben and Judah are both praised and criticized for what they did. Both are praised because they improved Joseph's condition but both are also criticized because they did not go the full distance. Reuben, the Talmud tells us, he's praised. When the Torah lists the cities of refuge, what is a city of refuge? A city of refuge is where an accidental killer goes to be saved and to take refuge from the avenger of the blood. If someone's a murderer, but they're not a willful, wanton murderer. It's not murder in the first degree. They were a bit negligent and they caused the death of an innocent. So they're a murderer, but an accidental murderer. So we're told that they they must go to the city of refuge. And that serves both as a punishment. They're there and they cannot leave. 
But it's also a salvation, because if they do leave, then they are vulnerable to being killed by the avenger of the blood, the relative of the person that they killed accidentally. And there are six designated cities of refuge. And the Torah lists them in the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 4. And the first city that's mentioned, it's Betzer Bamidbar, Be'eretz Hamishor, Lareuveni. Which means the first city is the city of Betzer in the tribal lands of Reuben. So of these six cities, the cities in which people come for refuge, for salvation, the first one that it mentions is in the tribal lands, in the heritage of Reuben. Says the Talmud, the book of Marcos, page 10a, why is the first salvation city mentioned in the Torah, the city in the tribal lands of Reuben? Why did Reuben merit that we're talking about salvation? The first tribe that we mention is the tribe of Reuben. Says the Talmud, because he began the salvation of Joseph. And he started the salvation of Joseph. And therefore, when we talk about salvation, the first we start with Reuben. So this is some praise, of course, of Reuben. He saved, and therefore he earns the eternal praise of being the first to save Joseph. And whenever it comes to salvation, who goes first? Reuben goes first. Now, he's also criticized because he didn't save Joseph completely. He upgraded him from being actively killed to being thrown to a pit, but maybe he could have done more. The Midrash tells us, this is in Rus Rabbah 5.6, had Reuben known that this episode would be recorded in the Torah, he would have placed Joseph on his shoulders and brought him back to his father, to Jacob. Reuben wasn't thinking long-term enough. Had he realized that this decision, this action, would reverberate for eternity, he wouldn't have subsisted and say, well, let's not kill him, but let's throw him into the pit. Oh, yeah, that one, the one that does not have any water, but does have snakes and scorpions. He would have said, Joseph's on my shoulders. You want to touch him? You got to kill me. I'm taking him back to Jacob, whether you like it or not. That's what Reuben would have done. Reuben was thinking a little too short-sightedly. That's why he only did a partial salvation. So Reuben's decision here to intervene in the plans of the brother, it's praise, but it's also criticized. It's also interesting, you know, the, the type of praise that it receives, it's the city of refuge. That's where accidental killers get sent. So as we mentioned, city of refuge, it's a salvation for the accidental killer, but it's also a punishment. It's not really full salvation. It's not freedom. It's partial salvation. The avenger of the blood cannot touch you there. That's really the kind of salvation that Reuben deserves to be praised with. It's kind of a partial salvation. And therefore, it's really fitting that he receives his praise in this way. You know what? All things being equal, the accidental killer would rather be home or on vacation or being able to go wherever he wants. So this is not the ideal salvation, 
Reuben did salvation, but not the ideal salvation. And as a result, the praise that he receives is also for a similar sort of salvation. Now, Judah, who does the next stage of salvation of Joseph, he is also praised and criticized for his behavior. The Midrash seems Judah's praise by saying that he was able to sway his brothers and he used his ability to influence them to improve Joseph's conditions. In fact, the Midrash says explicitly, the verse is telling us the praise of Judah. But the Talmud also criticizes him in a brutal fashion by saying that he started the salvation, but he didn't finish it. And someone who starts something good and does not finish it is going to be demoted, as Judah was, and is going to bury his wife and children, as Judah did. Judah did a partial mitzvah, and as a result, he was only able to build a partial family before it came apart. But this is a very interesting part of our parsha. There are, as you mentioned, a lot of interesting parts. But we have the salvation, albeit the partial salvation, of Joseph. Now, if we take this story and we examine it and take it a step further, I think we can ask the following question. The sons of Jacob were titans. These were very capable, very gifted, very righteous people. Out of the ten sons of Jacob, only two of them, Reuben initially and then Judah, they stepped forward to save Joseph. And the question is why? Why specifically these two? Reuben and Judah, why did they save Joseph? Now, maybe this is not such a good question because maybe the answer is obvious. You know, Judah, well, he is the tribe of the monarchy. He had leadership qualities. He's taking initiative multiple times in the Torah. And Reuben, well, you could say that given his position as the oldest, he would naturally be more responsible or feel more of a obligation to stop this terrible decision from being implemented. But I saw two ideas that I want to share. Very incredible ideas, very powerful ideas that I think illuminate this story with new light. And I think truly deepen our understanding of what was going on, but also give us some takeaways we're always looking for something to take home with us. Well, what's, what's something that we can glean? What's some insight that we can walk away with from this story? And I think the two ideas that I want to share with you, the two ideas that perhaps are interconnected and interrelated, these are ideas that can give us some ideas or some principle, some lesson that we can emerge from this Parsha with. So if you look at the verse, the verse that talks about Reuben's intervention, it starts off with an interesting word or interesting few words. Vayishma Reuven, and Reuven heard. Vayatzileyu adam, and he saved them from their hands. 
And he said, we're not going to strike him down. We're not going to kill him. But the verse starts with Vayishma Reuven, and Reuven, Reuben, heard. What did, what did Reuben hear? Doesn't say in the verse. Reuben heard. Now you would think that it's the deliberations. Oh, here's the dreamer. Let's see what happens with his dream. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into the pit, and we'll say that a wild animal killed him. That was the discussion before Joseph arrived. And simply put, you would say that, well, that that's what Reuben heard. But of course, everyone was there and everyone was present and everyone was privy to that. Let me say that again. That did not come out cleanly. Everyone was privy, privy, privy. Everyone was privy to that conversation, including Shimon and Levi and, and Judah and Issachar, Zvulon, Dan, Dan. Everyone heard it. Everyone was part of this discussion, this deliberation. Why does it say that Ruvain heard it? So I saw an incredible comment in the Panim Yafos. He says that Ruvain heard something that no one else heard. And that thing that Ruvain heard that prompted him to save Joseph. So what's happening? Jacob sends Joseph to go check up on his brothers. And Joseph is approaching. And the brothers begin to scheme. And one of them said to the other, Hey, look who's coming. It's Joseph the dreamer. Let us eliminate our nemesis right now. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into the pits. And we'll say that an evil animal, a wild animal, ate him. And let us see what will be with his dreams. That part of the verse, let us see what will be with his dreams. Simply put, if you just read the verse, you would say, well, the brothers are talking cynically. They're, They're speaking mockingly, sardonically. Oh, here's the dreamer. Here's the dreamer. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. We're going to kill him. Let's see what happens with those dreams. That's how you would understand the verse if you didn't see Rashi. Rashi says that that is not the meaning of the verse. It can't be the meaning of the verse says Rashi, because what the brothers say is, let's kill him and let's throw him into the pit and let us see what happens with the dream. Well, if you kill him and you throw him into the pit, of course, you know what happens to the dream. The dream is null. So the first part of the sentence does not jive with the other part of the sentence. You can't say, let us see what happens with the dream. If you know what happens with the dream, because if you kill him, you know that the dream is false, is null is meaningless because he is dead. He's not going to rule over you. So that cannot be what the verse means. So what does it mean when the verse concludes, let us see what happens with his dreams? Says Rashi, this wasn't the brothers talking. This was the voice of the Holy Spirit This is the voice of God. This is the voice of prophecy. Ruach HaKodesh. 
the brothers, they want to kill him. And they want to throw him into the pit. And they want to say that a wild animal killed him. Concludes the verse, and we will see what happens with the dream. It's not the brothers talking, says Rashi. It's the voice of God. It's a voice of prophecy saying, you want to kill Joseph? And you want to end your problems? And you want to override my plan, so to speak, God says? You want to invalidate the dreams? Let us see exactly who's going to win this. Will you win it? Or will the will of God prevail? Let us see what happens with the dream. It's not the brothers talking, it's God talking. Oh, let's see if you're able to actually implement your plans. That was the prophecy talking. But who heard this prophecy? No one heard it, apparently. No one except Reuben. The very next verse. Vayishma Reuven. And Reuven heard. What did he hear? Says the Panamiophos. He heard that prophecy. He heard the prophecy that said that no, actually those dreams are going to come true. And the will of God is that Joseph endures. And Reuven heard that. And he knew that Joseph was not supposed to be killed. And he saved Joseph. And he boldly declared, we're not going to kill him. He heard a prophecy and he took firm steps to implement what he heard. And he cites this comment in the Panam Yafos. He cites an incredible story in the Talmud, the book of Titus, page 21a. It's a story of two destitute and impoverished students. One of them is one of the names you'll see most, or one of the most frequent names in the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan. And one of them was his friend, whose name barely appears in the Talmud. His name was Ilfa. And they were students, and they were very, very poor. And they made a decision, listen, this is not uh, the kind of life that we want, to be destitute, to be impoverished, to be always wanting and lacking, to live a life of privation. No one likes that. They said, okay, it's time to close the books. It's time to wind up the scrolls. Let's go make a living. They were very bright, very gifted students, but they felt that 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 was the right decision for them. We're so poor, we're so impoverished, we have to leave and try to make a livelihood. So they left, they left the academy. And uh, they're going to make their fortune. And they were sitting under a wall, a weak wall, not up to code. And they're eating lunch as they plan their startup ideas. And two angels come. And Rabbi Yochanan overhears what these angels are talking about. And one of the angels says to the other angel, let's knock off this wall. 
let's give it a little nudge, this rickety, dilapidated wall. Let's send it flying and let it crush these two students. Because after all, they deserve to die. Because they're leaving the academy and they're abandoning Torah and they're abandoning the only thing that they give that could give them eternal life in exchange to make, to make a few bucks. They're forfeiting eternal life for the temporary life. We have to kill him. That's what one of the angels says to the other angel. And the second angel responds, no, we're not going to do it. Because among these two is one of them that's destined for real, transcendent greatness. Now, Rabbi Yochan is here, they're, they're eating lunch, and he overhears that conversation. Ilfa, the other young scholar, does not hear this. So Rabbi Yochanan asks Ilfa, did, did, you, did you hear that? Did you hear that conversation amongst the angels? He says, no, I don't know, angels? I don't see any angels. What, what, what are you talking about? So Rabbi Yochanan says, well, I heard it, and he didn't hear it. It must be that they were talking about me, and this is a message to me. So Rabbi Yochanan says to Ilfa, I'm going to go back to the academy. And if I'm poor and impoverished, okay, the Almighty will take care of me. So he went back to the academy. And Ilfa, his colleague and peer, went to do business and commerce. And Rabbi Yochanan flourished in the academy and eventually was appointed the head of of the academy. And the word that the Talmud uses, not, it's not appointed. It says he was coronated. He was coronated as the head of the academy. And Rashi there says that that actually improved his financial situation because once someone was appointed head of the academy, they would bestow gifts upon him and they would give him a very nice, robust salary so he ended up as a man of means. And by the time Ilfa comes back, Ilfa had gone to go make a fortune. And he was wealthy once he returned and reunited. He came back and he's a successful businessman. And his former colleague is now the head of the academy. And the students... They know who this Ilfa person is. And they say to him, well, Ilfa, what would have happened if you stayed here? If you stayed here and you never abandoned the academy, it would not be Rabbi Yochanan there at the head of the academy. It would be you. And Rashi there says that actually of these two, Ilfa and Rabbi Yochanan, when they left the academy, Ilfa was actually a greater scholar than Rabbi Yochanan. And had he put in the time and the dedication like Rabbi Yochanan did, it is he who would have been coronated. Now, Ilfa took this as a little bit of a slight 
to his scholarship. He climbed up the mast of a ship. Why a ship? All the commentaries talk about it. Maybe it's because he was a man of commerce and business, and maybe he had a ship. Or maybe the Talmud says that uh, great Torah success does not come to those who go on expeditions to pursue business opportunities in ships. He climbs the mast of a ship, and he says, anyone can ask me any question. Shoot, ask any question. And I will show you that my Torah prowess is still very, very high. And if I can't answer a question, I'm jumping off, and I will drown. And the Talmud proceeds to tell us that they started peppering him with questions. But back to Reuben. Here we see a precedent. When there is a prophetic voice, and it is saying something, and there are multiple people around, and one person hears it, and the other people don't hear it, just as was the case with Rabbi Yochanan, he says, I heard it. It must be it's talking to me, and I have to do something about this. Ilfa did not hear it. It must be it's for me. And he went to implement it. Similarly, Vayishmaru Vain Ruven heard. What did he hear? Hear the prophetic voice. The voice that was saying, well, let's actually see what happens with his dreams. Reuben heard the prophetic voice. And he understood that he heard it for a reason. And he took steps to implement it and to save Joseph. This is an incredible idea. Sometimes God clues people in to what is destined to happen. They hear a prophecy. They get a window into what God intends for the future. And this information is not given to them for their own curiosity, for their own viewing pleasure. It's conveyed to them for a reason, for an express reason. You learn something, there's a reason why you learned it. You have to do something about it. It's a sign that God wants your participation in executing said plan. If you see something, if you learn something, do something. Now, this principle we see elsewhere in the Torah. There's many places actually we see this idea. So, for example, Parshas Toldos. Jacob and Esau, two twins with very, very different characteristics. When Rebecca was pregnant and she was having a rough pregnancy, the verse tells us, chapter 25, verse 23, she went to find out what's going on. And the prophet tells her, Jacob will be the heir of the legacy of Abraham and the older one, i.e. Esau, will be subjected to the younger one. Rebecca is given a prophecy. And she doesn't share it with Isaac. But all of her decisions now make sense. She understood that she was told something for a reason. And she takes steps to implement that. And when she overhears Isaac saying, I'm going to give Esau a blessing, she does something, again, very radical. 
she intervenes and she makes this crazy plan. Oh, we're going to get Jacob dressed up, masquerading, impersonating his brother, and it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out because she knows, because she has some insider info. Same principle as Reuben and Rabbi Yochanan, when the Almighty reveals his plans to you, it is for a reason. And it's a sign that he wants something out of you. He wants you to play a part in it. And that is why Rebecca works assiduously to try to actualize those prophecies. Similarly, Netri's Parsha, after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, he gives him some unsolicited advice. This is going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. You should appoint someone, a smart, wise, capable, gifted, competent person to prepare. And everyone asks the question, wait, Pharaoh wants the interpretation of the dreams. Keep your commentary to yourself. So the commentaries explain that no, that's actually part of the dream interpretation. Part of what Joseph was revealing to Pharaoh is that when God tells you that, part of that message is you have to do something about it. You have to act, given that God gave you insider info. When you have a little picture into God's plan, you also have a mandate to actualize it, to do something about that. When you are made privy of a secret and you're positioned by God to have this information, that mandates you, that requires you, that compels you. It demands of you to do something about it. So here, of course, we're, talk- we're talking about it in the prophetic context. Reuben, here's the prophecy. Rabbi Yochanan, here's the angels. Rebecca is told by the prophet. Joseph interprets the dream. But I think we can interpret this principle or apply this principle more broadly. Whenever you're given a unique message, it's really an instruction. You're getting information for a reason. The Almighty is communicating with you. If you know something, if you see something, if you learn something, do something. So, for example, an idea we spoke about in the past. When a person finds an unattended corpse, if you find it, you have to stop everything you're doing and go bury it. You have to tend to it. You saw it for a reason. And that is equivalent to being a directive from heaven. I would even say, if someone is given a glimpse into their own potential, and they know what they can make of themselves in the event that they deploy their abilities, they're able to forecast, they're able to see in the event that I try my hardest, And I really give it my all. I can make something really special out of myself. That is an experience that rivals what Rabbi Yochanan heard. And it is a requirement and a directive to do something about it, to implement that. If you hear a message, even if it's not prophetic, 
If we start hearing voices, we have a problem. We don't hear voices, but we can hear messages. If you hear a message, you must do something about it. Otherwise, it would amount to rejecting an express directive from on high. Now, we could take this a bit further. You know, it's still unanswered as to why Reuben specifically heard this message. Why was he chosen? Was it random that he was chosen? So there's another idea here. This idea can truthfully stand on its own, but it may shed light onto why Reuben was selected. The Sephorno says an incredible idea. Reuben saved Joseph. And he says, we're not going to kill him. Let's not do that. What was Reuben communicating to his brothers? He was telling them, don't make a rash decision. Whenever you're acting impulsively and you're making a decision that can have disastrous and irrevocable consequences, don't make that decision. If you're going to do something that cannot be undone, if you're going to kill Joseph and you cannot undo that, such a decision must be made with sufficient gravity and weightiness and consideration and rumination and considering every element of it. The kind of decisions you don't want to make are the ones that cannot be undone and you're making it without sufficient deliberation. Avoid decisions that are rooted in in impulsivity when those decisions can cause irreversible damage. So that's what Reuben was communicating to his brothers. But then the Sephorno, the comment that uh, talks about this idea, he adds something really interesting. He says, sometimes even the righteous are prone to make such mistakes. So even someone who could be in other areas generally righteous, this is a unique kind of mistake that even righteous people can make. They're acting quick, which you know usually we say to act quick, to be energized and to, to do the right thing with alacrity and don't procrastinate. But if it can lead to irreversible damages, maybe don't do it. And the righteous have a propensity to make this kind of mistake. And then he gives an example, and this is the point that really brings this to Reuben. He gives an example of a righteous person that made a rash decision with irreversible consequences. And that person is Reuben himself. Reuben shuffled the beds of Jacob after Rachel died. Jacob moved his primary sleeping quarters to the tent of Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant. And Reuben was incensed by this 
After all, Billa was a secondary wife, and Reuben felt that this is a slight to his mother Leah, who was a primary wife. So what does he do? He comes and he drags Jacob's bed out of Billa's quarters into Leah's. But he interfered with his father's conjugal life. And this decision is a decision that he made in an impetuous and impulsive manner, like flowing water. You know, water doesn't stop and think, it just goes. And for this rash decision, Reuben lost his birthright, his monarchy, and his priesthood. Reuben made such a decision before, a decision rooted in impulsivity, quick like water, not stopping to think about it, and it costed Reuben dearly. He lost all those rights that were intended for him. And this is the same sort of mistake that the brother's about to make right now. And Reuben says, well, I've seen this before. Don't do it. Now, the Sforno does not say it explicitly, but he heavily implies that the reason why Reuben had the ability to discern that this was a terrible blunder that was about to happen, it's because he himself made that mistake before and he noticed the pattern. He made this same sort of mistake and he knew to avoid it. Reuben had made this mistake and he was aggressively repenting for it and it was front of mind and he was able to spot it in the wild. Do not make rash decisions in the spur of the moment, shooting from the hip, acting impulsively with a happy trigger. Beamed trigger happy. When the consequences of those decisions are irreversible, Reuben had been there before. And that's why Reuben specifically stopped them. Now, maybe this is why he was given the the prophecy. Maybe because Reuben had an insight that no one else had, he was able to hear the prophecy. He knew that this was a colossal mistake. And that's why, perhaps to the exclusion of the other brothers, that's why he heard the prophecy. But regardless, this is another important idea. Don't make irreversible decisions when you don't have sufficient time to chew it over. If you ever get really upset and you type out furiously an email, or you're like, oh, I got to get this tattoo right now, Don't make permanent decisions impulsively. Sleep on it. Ruminate on it. Reuben made that mistake once. He's not going to make it again. uh, Last night, I had an interesting conversation last night. Someone proposed that I do something. And it was really not an unreasonable suggestion. But I told him, I said, "I I have a policy. I've made this mistake way too many times. I don't make decisions in the same conversation that those decisions were proposed. I think it's a good idea and it's a good lesson. And maybe that's what's really happening here with Ruben. He notices a pattern, a decision made in the spur of the moment, one that cannot be undone. I've been there before. I'm not going to do it again. And maybe that's why he actually received the prophecy. Now this perhaps can be taken to another level. When I was thinking about this idea, 
I was reminded of Aaron. For those of us who were here in the Parsha podcast, I think it was last year, two years ago, we talked about this idea. After the tabernacle is erected, this is in chapter 9 of Leviticus, Moshe tells Aaron, go to the altar and go bring the sacrifices. And Rashi says that Aaron didn't want to do it. He was diffident. He didn't want to do it. And Moshe said, well, you should go do it. This is what you need to do. This is why you were chosen. And the Midrash says that why was Aaron, why was he hesitant? Because he looked at the altar and the altar looked like a calf. The altar has horns on either, on all four corners. And those reminded Aaron of the horns of the golden calf, which Aaron made. And he felt unworthy. The Ramban there comments that Aaron was always in repentance mode. He always lived with his sin. The ways of the penitent, the righteous ones. They never allow themselves to forget of their mistakes. And everything looked like a calf to him. And he was always vigilant and aware of what happened. Maybe this is similar to what's happening here with Reuben. Reuben, more than any of his brothers, he was hypersensitive and aware of his weakness. And therefore, counterintuitively, he was the one who displayed impetuosity in the past. But when the opportunity arose to make the same mistake again, Reuben, and Reuben specifically was the one who was able to spot that this is a very similar decision, and he was able to save them of making this blunder. So I think this is another idea that can serve as a valuable takeaway for us. When you made a mistake, you're actually endowed with some new power. You now have experience that you can call upon. And you have the ability, more than other people who did not make that mistake, to spot when someone's about to fall into the same trap that you did. So you could personally avoid doing it And you can also lead others, this is something to avoid. I made this mistake and I'm imploring you to avoid the mistake that I myself made. The verse says that Reuben heard something. He was given information that no one else was given. He was given a window into what the destiny of Joseph was. And he took action. The first takeaway that we're going to draw from this Parsha podcast is that when you know something, when you're given some information, you're privy to some secret knowledge, you must do something about it. Rebecca and her prophecy, Joseph and his dream interpretation where he gives unsolicited advice. Rabbi Yochanan, when he's eavesdropping on the angels, Reuben who hears something, if he hears something, it's like a message from God. Do something about it. A second idea, courtesy of the Sephorno. When you make a particular mistake, it's critical that you learn from your mistakes. And you avoid making the same mistake twice. And you direct others to not make that same mistake that you did. That is what is going on with with Reuben. He's praised for it. Now, of course, maybe he could have done more. Maybe he could have taken Joseph and put him on his shoulders and marched him back to Jacob. But we see a little little story here, one of the plot twists of our parsha. 
and we start peeling away some layers and we see deeper understandings. Why specifically Reuben? What did he hear? What is going into this salvation of Joseph and why Reuben specifically was prompted to be the Savior? Now, at the end of every Parsha podcast, we like to get a little smarter. Uh, raise raise our Parsha IQ just a few notches every week. Every, every, if every week we get 1% smarter, we'll get a lot, a lot smarter every week. Then it's going to compound and eventually we'll get really capable and we'll know the Parsha really, really, really well. And by the way, it won't be limited to just Parsha. The, the only thing really that's documented that is demonstrated to raise a person's intelligence is the study of Torah. So we like to end the Parsha podcast. We start off with an idea, that's the I, and then the, the Parsha podcast ends with, with a Q, with a, which is a question or a comment, poorly spelled, or a quip. Mostly we try to do a question. Sometimes we answer the question. Sometimes we just enjoy the question. This is what I call a broadening question on our Parsha. Something that's going to give us somewhat of an insight into how much intricacy is going on in these stories of Genesis. So the part begins, Vayeshev, Jacob settled. He settled in the land of his forefathers. He settled back in Canaan. Last Parsha, he had to deal with Esav when he was traveling back. Previous Parsha, he had to escape and he had to deal with Laban for 20 years. Now, Jacob is settling. And Rashi tells us that the verse that follows is connected to the settling of Jacob. The verse says, well, these are the children of Jacob, and it mentions Joseph. So Rashi is going to link the settling of Jacob to the fact that Joseph was his son. And Rashi tells us that last week's parsha ends with the vast enumeration and delineation of Esav's vast dynasties. This chieftain and that warlord and this king, such incredible descendants that Esav had, such dominance, such power. And Jacob is looking at that and saying, well, how can I possibly endure? And then he was settled. And he was calmed because he remembered that he has Joseph, and Joseph is Asaph's kryptonite. There's a lot of different chieftains and warlords and rulers and powerful people in the camp of Asaph, but I have Joseph. And he gives us an analogy of a massive flax dealer or a camel carrying a ton of hay or a ton of flax. And it's so imposing and it's so scary. But the blacksmith with one smash of the anvil and shooting off just one spark in the direction of the flats, all the flats will be consumed instantly. So too, Joseph is Jacob's secret weapon against Asaph. Asaph is so imposing but he's really like a paper tiger. The whole dynasty of Esav is just a bunch of hay or flax. And the house of Jacob, well, that is like a fire. 
And Joseph is the flame, is the spark. So when Jacob, at the end of the last week's parsha, he sees all these incredible powers of Esav, Vayeshev, Yaakov, Jacob is calmed, he is soothed and placated and assuaged. He's not worried. Why? Because he has Joseph. That is how our Parsha starts. Now, here's the question. First of all, this is not the first time that Rashi tells us this exact analogy. In chapter 30, verse 25, when Joseph was born, the verse says that it was right after the birth of Joseph that Jacob says he wants to go. He wants to leave Laban and go back to his homeland. Why does the verse connect the birth of Joseph to Jacob's desire to leave? So Rashi says, well, Joseph is the foil of Esav. And again, quotes the verse, the house of Jacob is like a fire and the house of Joseph is a spark and the house of Esav, that's a bunch of hay. One little spark from Joseph can completely consume and engulf and destroy all of Esav. When Jacob was alone, before he had Joseph, he was vulnerable. Esav is so, so fearsome, so violent, so dangerous, so volatile, and he wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob has to flee. But now Jacob has Joseph. Joseph is the foil of Esav. And once he's born, Jacob is confident that he can confront Esav. And he wants to leave. So this principle we're already told a few weeks ago, Parshas Vayetze, when Jacob is still with Laban in Padanaram. And now, after Parshas Vayetze, and after Parshas Vayishlach, now we're told it again. Jacob sees the vast dynasties of Esav, and he's comforted by the fact that he still has the secret weapon, he still has Joseph. So here's the question. Esav? Esav's not a threat anymore. Jacob already crossed that bridge. The whole partial last week began with the confrontation that Jacob had with Esav. And if you read the verse, you would think, well, that problem, that conflict has already been crossed. That threat has already been resolved. He had to deal with Laban. That's done. He had to deal with Esav. That's done. And now we have Jacob's internal conflicts amongst his family. That seems to be the story of the Torah going forward. Esav, well, that threat's over. Why is Esav still relevant? Why is this issue still on the table? Why now, when we finally, we, we're done with Esav? Says Rashi, well, we still got a problem. Jacob's still worried. This is an interesting question, and I'm not going to suggest an answer. Not because I cannot come up with one, but A, it's like uh, more than an hour into the podcast. And B, because the question is one of those questions that broadens our understanding of what's happening here in the Torah, but it will give you the context that you need for this answer. What we learn from this is that the struggle between Yaakov, Jacob, and Esav It's not a one and done. For the totality 
of Jacob's life, and of course Jacob is representative of our nation, we always have the omnipresent threat of Esau. And we see even last week's Parsha, we see that before even Jacob meets Esau, he has to fight with the angel of Esau, and there's back-to-back conflicts. But this idea that our nation has to struggle with Esau, it's important to realize the battle with Esau is ongoing. And we see this in many places in our literature. So for example, when Jacob has the dream and he sees the ladder and he sees the angels going up and down, the Midrash tells us that he saw four groups of angels. The angel of Babel, of Babylon, goes up 70 runs and comes down. Why? Because the nation will be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then the next set of angels from the next exile from Persian media goes up 50 and comes back down, 52 and comes back down. And then the third group from the third of the exiles of Greece goes up 180 and comes back down. And then the fourth one, the one of Edom, the one of Asaph goes up and up and up and up and up and does not seem to come down. We're told that there's four exiles, and Esav represents the fourth and final one. And Esav incorporates all the characteristics of the preceding three, and the threat of Esav seems interminable. And when it ends, that's the Messiah. The last battle is the final battle against Esav. And just as Jacob has never seemed to be finished with his battle against Esav, and he always has to make sure that Joseph is there, That's the story of the Jewish people. And when Jacob is actually being buried, Jacob the individual, Esau comes to stop him to blockade his internment in the cave of the patriarchs, even after Jacob has passed. Esau is still there trying to stop him. And only then, at the very, very end, Esau is finally decapitated and destroyed. Esau is always lurking. You can never really defeat it entirely until Messiah. Esav's grandson is Amalek. Amalek is the most potent and concentrated element of Esav. And so long as Amalek exists, we read about in the Torah later on, God's throne, so to speak, is incomplete. We always need the force of Joseph. Even after we initially destroy Esav, we still need Joseph. Joseph representative of Messiah ben Joseph, who's going to clear the path for Messiah ben David. And there's a connection, and I know we're getting into the weeds over here. There's a connection between Joseph and Dan, because the tip of the spear of Joseph is Dan. And all this is very theoretical. And it is, of course, broadening. But it's not so theoretical once you realize that the war between Jacob and Esau is representative, is emblematic of the war that we have with our Yetzahara. And we must always maintain our vigilance, and we must always harness the power of Joseph to win. Until Messiah comes, and the Almighty slaughters the Yetzirah for the righteous in front of the wicked, as told in the Talmud, in the book of Sukkah, on page 52a, until then, we always have to make sure that we have what it takes to defeat the Yetzahara. Now, again, I promised I wouldn't give you an answer, and I think I kind of did. But the question is really the takeaway. 
there are a lot of moving parts of what we're talking about. This question is a vista-expanding one. We read the stories, and the stories, of course, can and ought to be understood on a simple level as well. Even small children read this. But we realize, every once in a while we realize, there's a lot more happening behind the scenes. I have a plan, please God, to talk more about this sometime in the future. But I guess now you have a little taste of this subject at hand. And I appreciate that you joined me on this journey. And you join me every week here on the Parsha Podcast. And I'm sitting now in the studio in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. It's December, so I feel morally and contractually obligated to tell you that if you've not yet contributed to Torch in 2022, you could still do it for another couple of weeks. Torchweb.org. Send me an email, rabbiwalby.com. Listen to some of my other podcasts. There's a lot going on here at Torch. Send me a testimonial. Let us know what we can do to improve. Send me an email, rabbiwalby.com. Our website is torchweb.org. Hope you enjoy this. Hope you have a fantastic day and a splendid rest of your week and the most restful and invigorating and rejuvenating and inspiring and meaningful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, in good health and in great spirits, we will gather together again for another Parsha podcast next week.